I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. We have been working slowly through this letter to the Hebrews, but this morning I am going to attempt to work through all of chapter 7, so we will see how this goes. But before we hear God's word to us this morning, let us call upon his name in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are weak, but you are strong. We are as nothing, but you are everything. Left to ourselves, we are helpless and hopeless. But you are a mighty help and sure hope. And so as we come before you once again, seeking to draw near to you through Christ, pray that we would see that Christ is indeed still bringing us near to you. He lives forever and he will never fail to do what you sent him to do. So give us great hope in Christ this morning, we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are Received by mortal men, but in the other case by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. 
For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God. Three times in the letter up to this point, the author has mentioned a mysterious name, Melchizedek. And each time Melchizedek's name has been mentioned, I've told you, you need to wait until chapter 7 for me to explain to you who, Melche who Melchizedek is. And so I am sure over the past several months, you have not been able to sleep, just dying to know who this Melchizedek is. Well, I have good news for you. We have finally reached Hebrews chapter 7. However... I am not going to spend most of my time this morning explaining to you who Melchizedek is. Why? Because Melchizedek is not the point of Hebrews chapter 7. The author is not laboring to unravel the mystery of Melchizedek for you. He is laboring to reveal the mystery of Christ to you. Hebrews 7 is actually about the greatness of Jesus, not the greatness of Melchizedek. In fact, apart from Jesus, Melchizedek has absolutely zero relevance for your life. For Melchizedek is not your eternal high priest. Melchizedek is not the source of your salvation. That's Jesus. Jesus, therefore, is not said to resemble Melchizedek. Melchizedek is said to resemble Jesus. And Jesus' priesthood is not pointing you back to Melchizedek. Melchizedek's priesthood was pointing you forward to Jesus. In Hebrews 7, the author wants you to understand how good it is that Jesus is your great high priest and what that means for your salvation. The discussion of Melchizedek is little more than a means to that end. So my aim as I work through Hebrews 7 
is that you will better understand that you are saved forever because Jesus lives forever as your high priest. And there's that key word, forever. You see it repeated throughout chapter 7. The author of Hebrews wants you to get your salvation lasts forever. Why? Because your high priest lives forever. With this in mind, I'll first explain the, the context, and then I'm just going to answer three questions. Who is Melchizedek? Why was a different priestly order necessary? And how is it then that Jesus is a better high priest than all others? Fairly simple. To understand Hebrews 7, though, you have to first understand that the author's argument is essentially just working through Psalm 110, verse 4, word by word, phrase by phrase. As you may recall, in chapter 5, the author begins discussing Jesus' role as our great high priest. And as he does, he notes that Jesus didn't designate himself to be God's high priest, but God appointed him as the high priest. And to defend this claim, he quotes from two psalms, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, observing that Jesus was designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's the key phrase. However, before explaining to us what exactly this means, the author paused from chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through chapter 6 to help prepare us to understand what we are going to hear. At the end of chapter 6, though, the author finally returns to this subject matter, that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that's where we're picking up now in chapter 7. However, as I said, his explanation centers once again on the meaning of Psalm 110, verse 4, which he quoted earlier, which he quotes again twice in chapter 7, which means we have to have some idea what Psalm 110 is about and what verse 4 actually says. <clears throat> well, Psalm 110 is a psalm of David. It's a messianic psalm, meaning it's about the future promised king and messiah whom God was going to send to save his people who would be descended from David. And one of the striking elements of Psalm 110 is that this future king is also said to be a priest. Now, why is that striking? It's striking because in Israel, priest and king were separate, distinct offices. Yet here in Psalm 110, we read in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here we hear the Lord swear an oath. Which, in light of chapter 6, we know that's significant. But he swears an oath to this messianic king, designating him as a priest. Well, if that isn't strange enough, he doesn't designate him a priest after the order of Aaron and the Levitical priesthood, which is the only order of priests in Israel. He designates him as a priest after the order of of Melchizedek. 
But who on earth is Melchizedek? Well, that's the first question that our author has to address. And he answers this by going back to the only other place in the Old Testament besides Psalm 110 where Melchizedek is ever mentioned. And that is Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. Just three little verses. Everything the author says about Melchizedek comes from these three verses. So he's working with the exact same information you and I have. He's not looking to any extra biblical or secret sources. The context of Genesis 14 is when Abraham rescues Lot, when Lot is caught up in the middle of a battle between five kings and four kings. For when King Ketelaomer and his allies defeat the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and their allies. He takes everything from Sodom and Gomorrah, including Lot and all of his possessions, because Lot had chosen to dwell in the land of Sodom. Abraham, therefore, goes to defeat Ketelaomer and rescue Lot, which he successfully does. Then... After returning from his victory, Abraham has a very interesting encounter with a man named Melchizedek, who brings Abraham bread and wine and then blesses Abraham. Abraham then gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he had just won in the battle. And that's the entirety of Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek. Nothing more is said. But that's enough for the author of Hebrews to make his argument. So in the first three verses of Hebrews 7, he highlights several details from Genesis 14, including that Melchizedek is called a priest of the Most High God, and that's referring to the one true God. So he is God's priest. This means that before there was ever a Levitical priesthood under the Mosaic law, God had already designated for himself a priest. The author also notes that Melchizedek blesses Abraham and Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek. He's going to highlight both of those things in verses 4 through 10. He also observes that Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. And that Melchizedek is said to be the king of Salem. And Salem means peace. So he is king of righteousness and king of peace. Finally, the author observes that Moses doesn't tell us anything about Melchizedek's genealogy. Doesn't say who his mom is, doesn't say who his dad is, which is interesting since in Genesis, in the first 14 chapters, you get genealogy after genealogy. Anybody who's anybody has a genealogy. Neither his birth nor his death are recorded. He simply lives. Now, why is all of this so significant? No other New Testament author ever mentions Melchizedek. Hebrews is the only one. Well, the answer is found in verse 3. In all of these ways, the author sees a resemblance to Jesus, to the Son of God. Now, because of the language of 
being without father or mother or genealogy and having neither beginning of days nor end of life, there are those who have speculated that Melchizedek is a heavenly figure. Perhaps he's even a, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus, of, of God the Son. But I don't believe that's correct. For the author is clear that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. Resemblance is not identity. The author's point here is that there are similarities between the two that are going to teach us something about Jesus. So my answer to who is Melchizedek is this. Melchizedek is Melchizedek. He is a historical priest and king who literarily foreshadowed Jesus. Melchizedek is the literary shadow. Jesus is the literal substance. And if we equate them, we lose the author's argument. So how does Melchizedek foreshadow Jesus? Well, we see in Melchizedek one who is both king and priest. He's king of Salem. That's probably Jerusalem at that time. And he is priest of the Most High God. Well, that points to one who's going to come, namely Jesus, who is both king and priest. David was just a king. Aaron was just a priest. Melchizedek is both. Furthermore, just understanding the meaning of his name and the, the city where he was king brings, again, Jesus to the, the author of Hebrews. He calls Jesus to mind, for his name means king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem, which then would be king of peace. And who is our king of righteousness and our king of peace? It is ultimately Jesus. Jesus supplies the righteousness by which we can now be justified by faith. And therefore, he brings us peace with God. So I think of Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, Melchizedek is literarily without beginning or end. Meaning there's just no record of his father or mother, of his birth or his death, of his priesthood beginning or ending. Moses doesn't write it down. It's not that he's eternal. It's just Moses doesn't tell us any of those things. Now, in that way, he points us to Jesus who truly is a priest forever. Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, is literally without beginning or end. He is a priest forever. That's the author's point. He's arguing that Psalm 110 says, God swears an oath to the Messianic king that he will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek because Jesus is going to be a priest like Melchizedek, not like the Levitical priest, meaning this. Jesus is a priesthood of one. There's no predecessor. There's no successor. You read about Aaron. He dies. Lots of other high priests come after him. You read about all the other Levitical priests. They become priests based on their genealogy. Their dad was a priest. That's why they're a priest. They all keep dying. So we have to keep having more priests. 
That's not Jesus. He is a priesthood of one. And so in Melchizedek, we see a priesthood that is superior to Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. That's the point in verses 4 through 10. Without going into all of the details, the author essentially makes two arguments to show that Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood. And it is all based on the fact that Abraham is the patriarch. He doesn't just represent himself. He represents everybody who's going to be descended from him, including Levi and Aaron and all of the Levitical priests. So when Melchizedek blesses Abraham and it's the superior who blesses the inferior, it shows here Melchizedek is the superior figure. And when Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek, that once again shows Melchizedek is the superior figure. So why does the author of Hebrews take time to talk about Melchizedek, even though there are a grand total of four Old Testament verses about Melchizedek? First, because David mentions him in Psalm 110, and the author thinks that's significant. And second, he thinks that's significant because Melchizedek is a priest of one, and that's the kind of priest we need. We need a priest who will last forever. Melchizedek doesn't actually last forever, but the one who will be like him will last forever. That's the author's point. So that's who Melchizedek is, a historical figure who literarily points to our eternal priest. But why was a different order necessary? Why couldn't we just continue with Jesus being a priest after Aaron instead of after Melchizedek? Well, the author tells us in verse 12, verse 11. He says, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? The answer is we needed a, Levitic, a new Levitical priest and order, a new priest and order apart from the Levitical order because perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood and law. Now the word for perfection here isn't the same as what we've encountered in reference to Christ being perfected. Although the word is, is complex, just think of it here as a synonym for salvation. Salvation wasn't possible through the Mosaic law and through the Levitical priesthood. Notice later in verse 19 that the law is said to make nothing perfect and that we need a better hope through which we draw near to God. So perfection here encompasses everything that is necessary for an unholy people to draw near to a holy God, including cleansing us from our sin. So it could not perfect us in the sense of that it could not ultimately take away our sin and allow us to fully and finally draw near to God. Notice also then the connection between the priesthood and the law. 
The law and the priesthood were inseparable because the priesthood was established by the law to administer this particular law. So, for example, think of the difference between Apple and Microsoft. Apple and Microsoft use different software, different systems. So if you're working with Apple, you need Apple technicians who know how to use that software. If you're using Microsoft, you need Microsoft technicians who know how to use that software. Switch one or the other, you, you have to also switch the other. You, you need them to stay together. The same is true for the law and the priesthood. A different law requires a different priesthood. A different priesthood requires a different law. They, they go together. One last clarification before I summarize the author's argument is what does he mean, though, by a change of the law? You see in verse 12, there's a change of law, setting aside a weak and useless commandment in verse 18. What does he mean? Well, you have to keep the context in mind. While there was one Mosaic law, there were different aspects of the law. One of those aspects is what theologians call the ceremonial law. All of the rules and stipulations that had to deal with cleansing and purification and prayers and sacrifices. What allowed again people, unholy people, to dwell with a holy God. That's specifically what the Levitical priests were instructed to administer. They oversaw all of the purifications, prayers, and sacrifices. That's clearly what our author is emphasizing since he talks about how we are to draw near to God and he continues at length to discuss the purifications and sacrificial system under the Mosaic law. So when he's talking about a change of the law, don't think, oh, Ten Commandments, done with that. We can now commit adultery and kill people. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is that whole system that was built to deal with sin under the old Mosaic administration, that had to be done away with, and we need a new system. Because the old system was not designed to ultimately bring you to God. It was designed as a temporary measure until God sent his son to be the full final sacrifice for sin, whose blood would wash us forever. So it's not that there was something wrong with the Mosaic law. It did exactly what it was designed to do. It just wasn't designed to save you. You think of a spare tire. A spare tire is not designed to be your full tire that you drive on to go everywhere. The spare tire is just designed to get you to the garage where you'll get the full tire so you can keep driving. That's like the old covenant administration. It was the spare tire designed to get God's people to where they needed to be for God to send his son, that full tire that you're riding into eternity. So there was nothing wrong with the law. It was good. It just wasn't designed to save you. So the author's point is we needed a different priestly order because we needed a better system for salvation. That comes with Christ. This is why Jesus needed to be after the order of Melchizedek and not Aaron. 
We needed a better way to draw near to God. So the third question, how then is Jesus a better high priest? Three ways. First, he's better because his priesthood depends on better qualifications. What was the qualification to be a priest under the Old Testament? There was only one. You needed to be physically descended from Levi. You were a priest if your dad was a priest. So my successor here at Good Shepherd would not be someone who's necessarily qualified. You get Corin. I'm dead. That's how it works under the Old Testament. Doesn't matter whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. That's why the law, what the law stipulated. That's why genealogies were so important. Jesus, however, has much better qualifications. First, he is a high priest not because of physical descent. He's a high priest, you see in verse 16, by the power of an indestructible life. The author is explaining what it means in Psalm 110 verse 4 when God says, You'll be a priest forever. Notice the emphasis throughout this chapter that the, the, that the Levitical priests were all mortal men. But Melchizedek was literarily eternal and Jesus is literally eternal. So in addition to verse 16, you read in verse 8, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Again, in verses 23 and 24, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So there is a stipulation in the law about priestly successors because all the priests were mortal and died. You need a rule for succession if your priests keep dying. The same is not true for Christ. He is a priest by the power of an indestructible life, and so he remains forever. Now in his divinity, Jesus is, of course, eternal. But even in his humanity, Jesus' life is indestructible. You say, well, how can you say his life was indestructible when he died on the cross? Well, he didn't stay dead. Death took his life, but it did not destroy his life. Instead, his life conquered death, and death can never claim his life again. Death has been defeated. Death will one day be destroyed. So all other priests were Priests just based on mortality and genealogies. But Christ is a priest by power of an indestructible life. He has resurrection life and it cannot be touched. Second, priests under the old covenant were just made so by a stipulation of the law. But Jesus was made so by God's oath. In Psalm 110, you hear God swear an oath. He designates the priests he desires. The one he says, he will bring you near to me. So you read in verses 20 and 21. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath. 
And then he goes on to quote Psalm 110 again. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So why is Jesus a priest forever? The power of an indestructible life, but also the power of an indestructible oath. We learned last week in Hebrews 6 that God's oaths reveal the character of his unchangeable purpose. His purpose doesn't change. Therefore, the priest he designates will never change. This is the one that he is called to bring his people near to him. So we see in verse 28... For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And here perfect means again what it is always meant when applied to Jesus, which is that he is fully equipped to do what God has called him to do. Jesus is fully and powerfully enabled to bring you near to God. But he's also qualified because he has been separated from sinners. Remember, all that was required under the old covenant to be a priest was that your dad was a priest. That doesn't mean you were a very good priest. One of Israel's main problems was that their priests were as corrupt as they were. So what does Aaron do as soon as he's made high priest? He fashions a golden calf and he leads them in idolatrous worship. What happens to Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu? Well, God kills them because they don't offer sacrifices the way they're supposed to. Think about Eli's sons who are described as worthless men who don't know the Lord and God kills them too. See, we need priests whose ministry will actually purify us and not further pollute us. Think of when I'm hand washing dishes with a sponge. Well, after doing that for a while and you've washed several dishes, I need to pause and actually wash out the sponge because it's collected so much grime that if I just keep going, it'll make the dishes dirtier, not clean. In the same way as you see in verse 27, the priests who were sinners had to keep offering sacrifices for themselves before they could offer sacrifices for anybody else. But Jesus is not a sinner who contaminates his people. He's been separated from sinners in the sense that he has been free of sin. It says in verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He did not share in our spiritual corruption. In fact, this is another meaning of his indestructible life. It is indestructible in that death cannot destroy it, but also in that sin cannot corrupt it. And this is why he, as the priest, as the perfect priest and sacrifice, only needed to offer himself once forever. So we don't need many priests because Jesus lives forever. We don't need many sacrifices because Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient forever. So he is a better high priest because he has better qualifications. Number two, he is better because he has made a better way. Now, I'm not going to spend much time here because this is the theme of chapter 8. But Jesus is said in verse 22 to be the guarantor of a better covenant. 
The weak and useless commandment, the system that was never designed to save sinners and ultimately bring them near to God, was set aside when we were given a high priest from a different order. And so, as it says in verse 19, we were given a better hope through which we draw near to God. You now actually have hope to draw near to God. There is a way, a much better way. It works. And how is he the guarantor? Well, he proved its effectiveness through his own resurrection. And since he lives forever, he can now always bring many sons to glory with him. He guaranteed it with his own blood. His resurrection, life, and power guarantee the resurrection of his people. Third, he is a better high priest in light of all that I have just said because he saves forever, not just for now. That's what I want you to get from what I've been saying. All of this forever talk about Jesus is good news because it means the salvation he has accomplished is forever, not just for now. So if you've gotten a bit lost along the way, let me just help reorient you. So even if you don't understand every step of the argument in Hebrews 7, you can understand the author's conclusion in verse 25. The author says, consequently, meaning because of everything that I've just said, because Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is an eternal order of one, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So if you get nothing else, get this. Jesus lives forever, which means he is your high priest forever, which means his ministry effectively saves you forever. Think, why couldn't you have just said that at the beginning, Pastor? Well, because he took a long time to say it. The author's concern in Hebrews is that some might fall away, right? That, that's his big concern. But what does he keep doing? He just keeps pointing them to the assurance of their salvation. And the assurance ultimately rests on the eternal priesthood of Jesus. And so, Christian, you need to understand once again that because Jesus lives forever as your high priest, you are saved forever. He has been perfected forever. He holds his priesthood forever. And because he is forever, Christian, you cannot fall away. He doesn't save partway. He saves to the uttermost. Yet the author is clear again that this is true only for those who continually draw near to God through him. And so the implicit exhortation once again is keep drawing near to God through Christ. He is the only way. But let me just point out one last thing as I close. It's not surprising that as the author talks about drawing near to God, he talks about prayer. Because faith is drawing near to God as we pray. As faith prays, calls upon God, depends upon God, trusts in God, well, we draw near to Him. So prayer is the path that faith walks to come closer to God. And 
prayer is implied back in chapter 4, verse 16, when the author says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to find to help in time of need. In that instance, as he talks about Jesus as our great high priest, he then encourages us to pray in light of it. Prayer brings you near to God through Christ. It is like ascending with the angels up the ladder in heaven, which Jacob saw in Genesis 28. But in chapter 7, the author again highlights prayer in light of Christ's high priesthood. But this time, he doesn't talk about our prayers. Instead, he talks about Jesus' prayers. And I find this very encouraging. We need to be exhorted to keep praying. To know that as we pray, we really do draw near to God. But what about when our prayers are weak? We don't really know what to pray for. What about when our prayers are few or far between? Maybe the, the hardships of life have just discouraged us from praying. We don't really feel like praying. We, we're forgetful. We're distracted by other things. Well, then what's happening to us then? When our prayer life is not very good, does that mean we're really far from the Lord? If we're honest, our prayer life isn't what we want it to be. I think it's pretty much universal. Every time I meet with other pastors and Asking, what are ways that you want to be growing in your, your Christian life? Even every pastor I talk to, the first thing is, this, I want to pray better. I wish I had a better prayer life. The good news of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, is that your prayers to Christ are not what ultimately brings you to God. Instead, it is Christ's prayers for you that draw you near to God. You are saved by the eternal life, obedience, death, sacrifice, ascension, and intercession of Jesus Christ. He has done everything once and for all to secure your inheritance. But he is still at the Father's right hand praying to bring you into that inheritance. Because Jesus always lives, he is always praying for you. I find great comfort when I stand in this pulpit and I'm praying for the Lord to illumine us and to be with us. That I'm not the only one praying for that. Jesus Christ, the true worship leader, is in heaven praying for that to happen for us. And you think, what are all the things that Jesus is praying for you? Well, he's praying a lot of things for you. But one thing I can tell you for sure is that he is praying for you exactly what he prayed for Peter when he prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. And that's why Peter's faith did not fail. You better believe Peter's faith fails if Jesus isn't praying for him. And you better believe your faith fails if he's not praying for you. But I have really good news for you. All of that explanation about a high priest who lives forever, who doesn't have any predecessors or successors, means he is praying for you and he will never stop praying for you. That's why you're still alive right now in your pew. And that's why some of you, you've been feeling, I want to give up on my faith. You want to know why you haven't? The Lord Jesus Christ has sustained you by his prayers. And he will sustain you tomorrow and the next day and the next day into eternity. 
Are your prayers faltering? Are they few and far between? Even so, Jesus' prayers aren't. Do you not always know what to pray for? Even so, Jesus does. As Louis Burkhoff once wrote, it is a consoling thought Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our prayer life. That he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include prayers. And that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. But perhaps no one said it better than Robert Murray McShane. I've quoted this before and I will quote it again as I close. McShane once wrote, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, not only are we weak, but our prayers are weak. Our faith is frail. We get sick. We get discouraged. We lose things in this life that we love. Lord, all of us would have walked away a long time ago. But I thank you that we have a high priest who lives forever, who will never die, whose sacrifice will never need to be repeated, and whose prayers will never cease. So Lord Jesus, thank you that you pray for us. And we ask you to do what you have promised to always do. Keep praying that our faith would not fail. And keep sustaining that faith by your power and Holy Spirit. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.